Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are in awe of you. Lord, we are in awe of what you've done, that you would see us in our helpless and lowly state. Or that you would look on our sinfulness with grace and compassion and pour on your Son the wrath that we all deserve. God, we are in awe of the way that you move in in this world, the way that you show your splendor and your grandeur, your majesty by your creation. Lord, the way that you have intricately, intricately designed and woven together the universe, put it in perfect balance, the way that you artfully display your majesty with every sunrise and sunset, the way that you bring flowers to bloom in various parts of the seasons. Lord, you display your glory. Today we come in awe of you. But we also come, Lord, recognizing that we are still sinful. Lord, we are people who are mired and caught in sin, and yet we are daily being transformed by the power of your Spirit. So, God, we pray that you would purge sin from us. Help us to walk in holiness. But, God, we also pray that you grant us the grace needed to encourage and help one another. Father, you've told us in your words that we should lift up holy hands together on behalf of nations and kings and those in authority. And so, God, this morning we do come before you and we pray for those that are in authority over us. Lord, for our president and vice president and their cabinet, God, we pray that you would grant them wisdom and discernment. Lord, there are so many pressures on them. We pray that you would give them guidance. Give them, give them the will to act for the good of the nation, for the nations that they are helping. Father, we think specifically of Ukraine right now and the work, uh, or the war that is, is raging there. God, we thank you for the part that we can play as a nation in supporting them. But God, we pray for peace. We pray that you would stop this war. Lord, we pray, I pray that Russia would turn around and that the sovereign borders of Ukraine would be reestablished and that they would be able to act and move and live in freedom. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ there in Ukraine who are seeking to serve and help those in need. God, strengthen them, embolden them. Lord, we thank you for the surrounding nations and their willingness to take in so many refugees. God, we pray that you would provide for every need. Lord, help us know how best we can come alongside as you would lead us. Father, we pray for the missionaries that you've called us to send out, thinking specifically of the Basses as, as they work in the Middle East. God, strengthen them. Lord, we thank you for the good reports that we've been receiving, the way that your gospel has been going forth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bear fruit 
even as the seed of your gospel is planted in the lives of those they are working with. Father, we we lift up the Dilworths as, as they continue to minister and serve in an area that is hostile to you. Lord, strengthen them and grant them grace, we pray. And Father, even right here in, in town, Lord, we, we lift up our, our brothers and sisters in Hosanna. We pray specifically for Pastor Chuck for his swift recovery from this accident. Lord, we pray for them as a church that you would strengthen them and embolden them. Lord, may their witness of you and your faithfulness go forth in a bold and mighty way. God, we pray for Kim as she's seeking to care for Chuck, trying to figure out the right things to do, the right next actions. God, we pray for a full and swift recovery, a thorough healing on his body. And God, we pray over these next few minutes as we open your word together that you would work your will in us. Lord, that as we come to this text, that we would understand what you would have us do in light of what you've written there. Spirit, we need you to move in our midst. God, we need you to speak through your word. Grant us the will to submit and the desire to be obedient to all that you're calling us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we get to the message, I want to just point out a couple things. In case you guys hadn't heard, Pastor Chuck from Hosanna was in a pretty severe accident yesterday. So be praying for them. He's down at uh, Suburban. Um, they had already had plans for Sterling to preach, so they're good to go. They're in good hands this morning. But just be praying for him. Chuck was supposed to go to Spain this afternoon to visit his daughter, who's there on an extended stay. And, and so those plans are all being tossed up. Um, but just be mindful. Be praying for them. Reach out to them. See if there are things that, that we can do to encourage and support Kim and, and Chuck in this time. Uh, but, so just wanted you to know that that's what that prayer was all about. Um, my understanding is he is doing well. He has some broken bones and some bruising. and um, He may be in suburban for a couple of days, but we'll see. Um, but with that, if, if you guys have... Steve, I'm going to mess up. If you guys have your copy of God's Word, and we'd like to open to the book of John, chapter 8. Uh, We're going to be there. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story, a true story about a young woman named Carla Faye Tucker. Carla and her boyfriend liked to do drugs, as some young people like to do. And so when they were under the influence, they began to get into a bit of mischief. And so they noticed this one very nice house in this one beautiful neighborhood and decided that place has a lot of bling and we need to get it for us. So while they were under the influence of drugs, they went over to this house, tried to stake it out, trying to see what all's there, and set up a strategy for taking things that were not theirs. Well, while they were there, while they were looking at the house, gathering things together, the owners of the home came home. And Carla Faye and her boyfriend uh, panicked. They didn't know what to do. 
And so rather than fleeing, they decided to stay and fight. Carla Faye and her boyfriend killed the homeowners. They were quickly caught, tried, and convicted, sentenced to death. Her boyfriend, I don't know much about him, but her boyfriend was, uh, died in prison just a few years later. He, he never reached all the way to the end of his sentence. Three months after she got into prison, though, Carla Fay happened to show up to one of these puppet shows that a church would show. And she heard the gospel. She began to be convicted of her sin. And she realized there's something there that I need to pay attention to. And so, like all good gospel ministries, right, Ned? They, they go to the prison and they have lots of resources. Well, they happen to have some Bibles out on the table and being the thief that she was, she decided she would help herself to one of those Bibles, not realizing they were giving them away. And so Carla began to read Scripture and began more and more and more to, to become convicted of her sin and realize the love of Jesus Christ. And she gave her life to Christ a few months later in prison. Totally owning, owning her sinfulness, owning her life before and repenting of that and coming to faith. And, and so she began to minister to her inmates. She began to share the gospel with them and share, and, and share how God had transformed her life, even though she wasn't ever able to leave the walls of that prison. Several years later, about a decade later, her, the, the date of her, her uh, execution was set. You see, in November of, I think if I have this right, November of 1997, they determined, okay, it'll be February 3rd, 1998, she would die of lethal injection. Well, as you know, there are certain places where people can, uh, certain people in authority can, can stay executions. They can pardon people. And so people began writing, all these believers began writing letters stating, this woman needs to be saved. She has been transformed. Let her live. And there were other people crying for, her, for justice for the family. You see, she knew that she had been forgiven by Jesus Christ. And she prayed that she could be forgiven by the, by the, the victim's family. Three months before she was to be executed, Larry King picked up on her story and decided to invite her on his program. And, and, and being the good news guy that he was, he was really trying to push against her, her conversion, saying, oh, this is just a, a jail conversion. You're trying to get out of this. You're saying the right things to tug on people's hearts. And no matter what he said, he could not be convinced that her conversion was anything less than genuine. She was able on national television to share the gospel and share how God had changed her life. People continued to take notice. They wrote letters to her governor saying, please let this woman live. So the governor has this challenge before him. Does he fulfill the demands of justice? Or does he let this woman live out her days in prison? Knowing that she has a genuinely changed life and is truly repentant. Really, her conversion is the very thing the prison system would hope that people would have, they, where their lives are completely turned around and changed. I bring that up because so often in justice and in the pursuit of holiness, we get caught up into being 
right and, and wanting to bring justice, but we fail to take into account the work of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God in someone's life. Jesus, as, as, we, as uh, Dan read earlier, was in a very similar encounter to that when someone who, like Carla Faye Tucker, was caught and they came to test Jesus. So as I said, if you have your copy of God's Word and want to look at John chapter 8, let me just read this again so it's fresh in our minds in a, in a little bit of a different translation. And it really begins John seven fifty three to eight eleven. It says, And each one departed to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came to the temple courts. All the people came to him and sat, and sat down and began to teach them. The experts in the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught committing adultery. And they made her stand in front of them and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone to death such women. What do you say? Now they were asking this to, in an attempt to trap him so that they could bring charges against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in asking, he stood up and replied, Whoever among you is guiltless may be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. Now when they heard this, they began to drift away one at a time, starting with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up straight and said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she replied, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Now, if you're looking at your own copy of God's Word, or maybe even in the Pew Bibles, I didn't get a chance to check this earlier, but you may notice that there's some extra little markings that, that state that the earliest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament don't include this in the book of John. And, and, and part of what happens when they put Scripture together, when, when it was all canonized, there were stories and fragments and pieces put in different places. And, and generally, the commentators that I looked at would agree this is not originally part of John's gospel. Um, they don't think John wrote this part of the book. But they do believe this was a genuine encounter that Jesus had. And so even if an editor put it in a place where we might not think, where it might not fit totally, it is still the inspired Word of God. And it's, it's consistent with what God, what, with the way that Jesus would, um, would have acted. And I think it's, it's helpful for us, for our edification and for our spiritual growth. And so with that in mind, I want us to think about the main characters in this pericope in this little encounter because we've got three people you have the woman you have these religious leaders or religious zealots and you have jesus christ and i want to understand i want us to think about how we relate to each of these people and i think if we begin with the woman we have to recognize that we are all that woman caught in sin she was caught in a very specifically named sin and because she was caught the way she was, she was guilty and she didn't deny it. The challenge that we all have to face is that like her, we are caught in sin. 
Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is something that plagues all of us. We have inherited it from our earliest ancestors. We are mired by sin and by sin's nature. The world that we live in has been corrupted by sin. We can't deny that. It's not difficult to see that not only are we plagued by sin, but we all have different sins that we wrestle with. You're tempted with different sins than I'm tempted with. What is a temptation to me might not be a temptation to you, and yet we all struggle with that. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 talks about this. Some translations, I think it's the King James, that, that says that talks about besetting sins. Look at what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Whereas some translations say, and, this, and those, that besetting Sin. But did you notice the imagery there? The sin that entangles or snares us. I imagine it's kind of like trying to run a race with your ankles tied together. You're not going to get very far or go very fast or you're going to fall on your face. And sin, when it's caught up, when our lives are caught up in that, is that type of debilitating and crippling activity. We become ineffective. But then that kind of begs the question, well, what is sin? We could easily say that sin is an affront to the holiness of God. It runs counter to God's will in our lives. Sin literally means missing the mark. I know we have some good marksmen in here. Sin is never hitting the target. Not even hitting the backdrop. Sin is totally missing the mark. The beautiful and encouraging thing is that God knows that about us. And He did something to deal with our sin. See, Romans 3.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we, we, sung, we sang about that a little bit ago, just how, how our lives were mired in sin, and yet God saw us in that place. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. And God sent His Son, Jesus, fully human and fully divine to be that perfect sacrifice on our behalf to atone for our sin in order to bring us into a right relationship with God. And He has reconciled us to God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So we gain access to, to this forgiveness by faith, admitting our sinfulness and receiving God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, if you've not yet responded to Jesus' free gift of salvation, let's have a conversation after church. Let's get together this week. Talk to someone here. Seek to understand what it means to be fully saved. But I think it's important for us to recognize that we are all this woman. And this isn't a conversation about gender. This is a conversation about sin. Because until we recognize that we are all caught in sin, we don't have the common ground to stand on. Because we're all going to start looking at this problem from different perspectives. 
But also because we recognize, if we recognize that we are all this woman, we are all caught in sin, it helps us to be able to look at one another with a great deal of humility. It allows us to be able to understand that someone who struggles with this sin is just as caught up in it as I am in my sin. So it leaves leaves no room for judgment. But unfortunately, that too often is not the case. Which brings us to our next point of observation, and that is that we are tempted to be these religious zealots. We were tempted to be these men who dragged this woman out in front of a crowd and stand her in front of Jesus and, and condemn her in front of him, verbally condemn her. But how did these people act? You see, I, I think they cared more about their own self-righteousness than they did about her holiness. Did you notice what it said in the text? In fact, if you look, it said she was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act, which means that someone saw something to indicate that this woman was committing a sin. And what's more, that because of Jewish law, in order to condemn someone to death, there had to be more than one person. There had to be more than one witness. The Old Testament law said that it had to be two or three people. Deuteronomy 17.6 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And rather than helping her out of her sin, these people simply watched in order to catch her. And Jesus, he challenged us to view our sin differently. Look at Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You Hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, it's easy, I think, sometimes when we think that we are self-righteous for us to be able to stand in judgment on someone else. And to be able to say, oh, look at that sin in your life. And Jesus is telling us, your own sin is blinding you like a plank coming out of your face. One of Job's counselors, when they were trying to help Job in his season of trouble, said this in Job 36. He said, but you are full of the judgment of the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing. And let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. These guys cared more about their own self-righteousness than they cared about her. But in addition to that, <clears throat> they treated her as a pawn in, her, in their game to entrap Jesus. She was simply a tool, a game piece in this, in this game of life. They had a goal to trap him, and it was a good one. It was, then this is not the first time. We see time and time again where they're bringing Jesus these tricky situations, trying to understand what his role is. 
You see, if he condemns her, he upholds the law and this woman dies and all the things he's been teaching about grace and mercy become put aside. And yet if he sets her free, then he proves that he is light on sin and therefore not worthy to be heard or followed. And so he's in this difficult situation. And instead, he calls them back to Scripture. And he says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And I think it's important for us to recognize that Old Testament law required that one of the witnesses be the first to cast a stone. Deuteronomy 17.7 says, The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge evil from your midst. And it seems like this standard was put in place so that if, if a witness comes forward to say, hey, this person is caught in this sin that deserves death, that their conscience has to be clear if they're going to be the first one to take a stone in this punishment, in this judgment. Some of the commentators suggested that this form of judgment wasn't even carried out consistently in the first century. They were simply, they caught this woman or maybe, who knows, maybe they made it up, we don't know. But they caught this woman and are now presenting it before Jesus in order to do something that they were inconsistent in doing anyways. And yet, Jesus seems to be calling out their integrity. He's calling them out to say, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Don Carson in his commentary said this. He said, Jesus is not saying, Jesus does not mean that the authorities must be paragons of sinless perfection before the death sentence can be properly meted out. Nor does it mean that one must be free from lust before one can legitimately condemn adultery, even though lust and adultery belong in the same genus. Get this, it must it means, rather, that they must not be guilty of this particular sin. They must not be guilty of this particular sin. I've often wondered, why isn't the guy dragged in front? In order to commit adultery, it has to be two people. I wonder if he was one of the guys with a stone in his hand. And it was being covered up by all the other guys. John Carson continues, as in many societies around the world, so here, when it comes to sexual sins, the woman was much more likely to be in legal and social jeopardy than her paramour. The man could lead a respectable life while making the same sexual sins with a wink, with, with a knowing wink. And Jesus' simple condition, without calling into question the Mosaic Code, cuts through the double standard and drives hard to reach the conscience. You see, unfortunately, we've seen this. You know, Carson talks about that. It's been there throughout history. And we've seen it, unfortunately, throughout the church. They've, people have been held to different standards. Men have blamed women for being too pretty or too sexy or too beautiful. Blaming women for their own lust. I read a story this week, a tragic story, 
<clears throat> about a pastor's daughter. And uh, the, 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 past, the daughter was in the youth group at their church. And one of the youth leaders, unfortunately, was really liked this girl and began enticing her and drawing her into her relationship and ultimately abused her at some point in time. Well, when it came forward, the, the pastor did what he needed to do. He needed to protect his daughter, and so he called the authorities, which is what we should do in a situation like that. But all of the other leaders said, no, don't call the authorities. Don't make this public. And instead of bringing this man before the church, calling him to repent, they defended the man, taking his word over the word of a 13-year-old girl. The pastor and his pastor was forced to resign. The girl went through years of treatment. And thankfully, by the grace of God, the pastor is now faithfully preaching in another church and the girl is happily married and has experienced healing. But it doesn't change the fact that the church got it wrong. There was a double standard put in place there that we need to pay attention to. And Jesus is calling it out. And so, ladies, uh, sisters, I want to just say to you, I'm sorry for the way that Christian men, Christian leaders in the past have treated you. They may not be leaders here at PBC. I don't know all the history here. But I'm sorry if you've experienced a double standard. We are all called to modesty and to holiness, but men can't blame you, ladies, for the lust that is in our hearts. But beyond that, let's think about what our society has done, because our society has made women an object. We've so objectified women to to sell books, to sell movies, to get better ratings on TV shows. To make bigger box office hits. And just as these religious zealots made her into a pawn in their game of power, so too our society does the same thing. And we are guilty of the same when we see, we are guilty of the same when we see sin in others. When we are willing to use someone as a tool or as an example in our own quest for righteousness. Either as individuals or as a church. So in addition to recognizing our own place in this, seeing that we are this woman, and in in addition to recognizing our temptation... To, to be these religious zealots. They're, I mean, they're trying to uphold the holiness of God, and yet there's that double standard, and we all are that way. We wrestle with that. I think this passage helps us to see that we are called to be gracious like Jesus. We are called to be gracious like Jesus. But let me make it clear. Jesus doesn't excuse her sin. He even tells her in the very end, He said, go and stop your life of sinning. Stop doing that. We've talked about this before, but so many people today want to redefine sin and they want to rationalize sin. They go, oh, well, that's just just the way I am. No, sin is because we've missed the mark of God's standard. 
God's standard of perfection. And it's a mark that we will never totally get. It's still an act of rebellion against God's holiness. And yet, Jesus gives her grace. He gives her an opportunity to be transformed by grace. Remember this, we read this earlier, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is in that boat. But look at what the next couple verses say. And are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He showed her grace and ultimately gave his life as a gift of grace. And so now, as his followers, not only do we get to receive his free gift of grace, we get to receive his forgiveness, but we also get to be ambassadors or ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are to be, we are to seek to be Jesus' ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation. But I have to ask us, what is our reputation? What is our, are we more like the religious zealots? Full of double standards, pointing fingers? I remember someone a long time ago used to tell me that when I'm pointing my finger at you, I've got three pointing back at me, right? Except so often it's not seen that way. And Paul reminds us, this isn't up there, but, but think about this from Galatians chapter 6. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Because that is a challenge. That's so often, I, I've been in accountability groups with guys where we're praying for holiness. We're praying to, to root out lust and, and all these things in our lives. And yet, so often, when you get in these kind of groups, it's easy to fall into that same sin. And so I want to encourage us, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to make sure that we are aware of that temptation to stumble. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to to bear his own load. So where do we need to show the grace of Jesus to our weaker brothers and sisters? Where do we need to preach the grace of Jesus to our friends and family members who are far from him? You see, on one extreme, we could be seen as excusing all sin. Oh, that's, that's okay. God is gracious. God is merciful. On the other extreme, we could be seen as judgmental. 
as so law-abiding. I mean, this is what so many of the churches, the middle schoolers and I were talking about this morning. Some, some folks, especially in the church of Ephesus at the time, there were people who were trying to get people to obey the whole law. And yet, totally forgetting about the grace of Jesus Christ. We see that time and time again. So are we going to justify everything? Oh, rationalize it, it's okay. Are we going to judge everything? And yet I think Jesus calls us to a different way. It seems like he's modeling something different, a better, a gracious way for us. So let me get back to Carla Faye Tucker, because I'm sure you're on pins and needles wondering what happened to her. Did her governor set her free? No, he didn't. Carla Faye Tucker lost her life by lethal injection February 3rd, 1998. Outside of the prison, there were people with picket signs. Put her to death, put her to death. People on the other side saying, set her free, set her free. The governor did not stay the execution. Justice was served. She was guilty. And the just judgment was that. The law was appeased. The question is, should she have been freed? I don't know. Would Jesus have let her live if he was the governor of that state? Again, I don't know. Jesus never held political office. (laughs) But what I do know, and I believe with all my heart, is that Carla Faye Tucker is alive in the presence of Jesus Christ today. That we will one day be reunited with her. She might have received earthly justice here for a crime she did commit. But she has received eternal justice. Freedom from all of her sins. The same freedom that each of us can receive. As a sinner, she has been saved by grace. Jesus paid her eternal debt. And she received the grace of Jesus in prison and and demonstrated that transformed life. But as we close, I want us to think, how should we think about this episode in Jesus' life? How should we think about this little piece of Scripture that is in front of us? I think there's two things that we need to do. One is that we need to take a serious yet grace-filled view of our own sin. We need to take a serious view of it. We need to recognize that, yes, sin is present. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin. And that we would appropriately repent and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. And I, I do say, it might even mean going to another brother or sister and saying, I struggle with this. Will you please pray with me? Will you please walk with me and help me through this? Help me toward holiness. So we need to take a, a serious and yet grace-filled view of our sin, but also... We need to take a grace-filled view of the sin that we see in other people. Call them out of their sin. Don't identify them as their sin. If someone comes to you asking to walk with you through that, help you walk with them out of that, then pray with them. Pray for them. Encourage them. 
not in a judgmental way. And even as Galatians encourages us, put up guardrails so that you don't fall into that same sin. But I think it's super important that we we spur each other on to holiness and yet give each other grace when we stumble. I think that's what Jesus, a bit of what Jesus was modeling here. Helping us see, yeah, we were called to holiness, but we're going to screw up. This side of eternity, (laughs) we are all going to mess up. And we need to show each other that grace. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for what you've written there and how you've challenged and encouraged us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us to be men and women who seek to be holy, who seek to honor you with our lives. And yet, help us also to be men and women who display your grace in the way that we treat others, who wrestle with sin, who struggle. Give us wisdom, we pray. Grant us discernment. Grant us a desire for holiness, we pray. In Jesus' name.